Um, with that being said, um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to get into the book of Revelation. So if you guys uh, have your Bible, open up to the book of Revelation chapter uh, 7 is where we're at here today. 7, uh, book of Revelation. Um, if you guys are new here, I want to welcome you. Uh, as Greg said, my name is Brian, one of the pastors, and we started a series in the book of Revelation uh, a few months ago, and we're kind of making our way through the book of Revelation. I want to give you guys a real fast uh, recap as to what we've looked at so far, and then I'm going to pray, and then uh, we'll get to work on chapter 7, which is where we're at here today. Uh, we start off basically by stating um, John, uh, the apostle, he was one of Jesus' very closest friends. Uh, in good, close relationship with Christ, uh, John, after Jesus uh, resurrected and ascended to the Father, John continued ministry. A lot of uh, scholars believe John was like a pastor. And John would go around pastoring, teaching the Word of God to different bodies of believers. And uh, while John was preaching the gospel, uh, because John was sort of in a culture that was kind of becoming increasingly more and more hostile towards uh, Christian belief and whatnot, John was basically thrown in prison. He was exiled onto sort of a penal colony on an island. The name of the island was called Patmos. And while John was on this island of Patmos, God comes to John and reveals things to John. And the things that John gets revealed to him, he ends up writing down in a book. That's the book that we're reading now. It's called the book of Revelation. Uh, the book is sort of this unfolding story or drama of what God is going to do in the future, but it's also sort of this ongoing revelation of who Jesus is. Now you remember, John, because he was one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, John also writes of himself and he says, I am the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, John had this close relationship with Christ, and yet, even when Jesus ascended to the Father, even when John was receiving this revelation, I'm certain there were aspects about Christ's character that were being revealed to John that were absolutely throttling him. Like just absolutely blowing his mind. Because these were areas or aspects which John really had no way of understanding about Christ except by way of revelation. Um, revelation chapter 1 basically starts out by saying that this is a revelation of Christ. So what we basically try to do uh, throughout this whole little series is to point out our main objective in this book uh, is to try to really see Jesus. That's our real main goal, is we want to see Jesus for a couple reasons. One is because that's what it seems to be is the main purpose of the book, main objective of the book, is to reveal or unveil Christ so that as we understand him, as we see him, we worship him, we love him. But also, too, the other reason is because when it comes to eternal things or ultimate things, things that will ultimately be going on for the next 10 billion years throughout eternity, uh, Christ will be at the center of them all. Christ will be at the center of them all. I don't think we're going to be all worried about what, will, you know, what the scheme of end times events are going to be, but Christ will be ultimately the all in all. Christ will be what satisfies us. Christ will be what fuels our worship. Christ will be what takes care of us for all eternity. Now that being said, now what the thing that I've tried to point out as we've gone through the book of Revelation up until this point is that the book of Revelation for the past 2,000 years has been very widely, very broadly uh, interpreted. In other words, we tried to get into this a little bit last week. There's a lot of different ways to sort of slice up and dice up the book of Revelation. Um, that being said, one of the things that we really wanted to try to maintain is that even though you may have different views of different people within this body, within this fellowship, uh, these are secondary matters. 
the way that you see the unfolding of the events of the end of the world and whatnot within the book of Revelation, they're secondary issues. They're not primary. They're not essential in terms of how one is saved. But ultimately at the end, one thing that all Christians believe on, all, one thing that all believers who trust the Bible as being the inspired word of God, is we all believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back. We all believe that. We all believe that Christ will one day come back um, to this planet and he will reestablish or establish, I should say, his uh, glory, his kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end forever and ever and ever. And he will make right all that which is wrong. He will reverse death and actually conquer death and establish life for all eternity. And all who love Jesus will be there with him and rule and reign with him, world without end, forever and ever. Amen. Right? And it's a beautiful story. And that's what all believers believe in. The way we get there, in other words, what some of the end times events are going to look like, there's lots of discussion about that. And our response to that is to basically say, we can hold differing views, but the main thing is we just want to be nice. We want to be loving, we want to be kind, and we want to be able to at least create an environment where we can dialogue about these things without getting all nasty, without getting angry, without getting defensive, without becoming basically carnal, fleshly, just wicked, evil people, right? We don't want to revert, we don't want to go back to default, wicked mode. We want to be loving people who love Jesus, who recognize Christ is ultimate in all things, and how we maybe come to certain perspectives in the end times, we may disagree, but we want to keep Jesus central in all things. So that being said, as we look at this, I realize that there's basically two types of people that kind of approach the book of Revelation. One, there are those who might look at this and say, they're the type of people that, kind of, that can kind of get sort of argumentative, they want to discuss, they want to fight, uh, they've got very, very strong opinions about this, and they're ready to fight. Uh, to those groups of people, if you're here, is I want to say, you need to see Jesus in the text. You need to really see Jesus in this book. And you need to let that revelation of Jesus soften your heart, bring about a sense of humility, and cause you to realize that all who call upon the name of the Lord are saved. In other words, that means, i.e., they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. Uh, you need to see Jesus in the text. Others of you uh, may approach the book and you think, the book of Revelation is not the book that everybody argues about. and every, you know, It's all sorts of end times type stuff. And you might be looking at it and thinking, I'm going through a hard time in my life. I can't pay my bills. My family's falling apart. My marriage is a wreck. My children are getting off into sin. I'm flunking in school. Everything's a wreck in my life. I got some sort of incurable disease. Everything is a train wreck in my life. I don't know what to do with my life. And we're, ta we're talking about things that will maybe happen. We're not really sure about what can happen. And the reality is, is to some, the concept of the study in the book of Revelation might seem very distasteful. To you, I want to say... Look, Jesus is in the text. It's my goal, it's our goal as we look through this is so that Jesus keeps reemerging over and over again, that Jesus keeps coming out of the text. That's what I hope for us to accomplish. That's what I hope for us to see. So the first group of people, we want you to see Jesus. We want that vision of Jesus to bring about a sense of humility, of love, respect, and honor to all one another within the body of Christ. So those of you that are struggling, hurting, going through difficult times, I want you to see Jesus too. And I want you to see how Jesus comes through in the text in a really profound way to bring about uh, just a sense of, of, of safety, of salvation, of hope. That's what I hope, ultimately, we'll see as we look through this. So, with that, I'm going to pray. 
we're going to ask God to just come upon our time right here and let him bring the text to life to us, for us, and then we're going to make our way through it. Chapter 7. Father, first of all, we just want to say thank you for such a great salvation that you've given to us through your son. God, we just recognize that apart from you, uh, we have absolutely no way of finding any type of hope or salvation in this world. God, we recognize that we, by nature, are always looking to all sorts of other things to bring deliverance, to bring salvation, to bring hope, and yet every single thing, God, that we put our hope and trust in outside of you always leaves us destroyed. And yet, Jesus, you come around, you come into our lives, you open our eyes, you cause us to see that not only are you a beautiful and a great and an almighty and all-powerful God, but that you're full of love and you're full of compassion. And God, that you have saved us. You've not only saved us from our sin, from our sin but you've saved us from ourself. And God, ultimately, you will one day save us for eternity for yourself so that we will be with you. So God, I ask you right now that you would let your word come to life in our hearts and that you would bring revelation and bring understanding, bring transformation to our lives. And so we just commit this time in your hands. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in everything that we do. And God, those that are hurting, those that are struggling, I pray that your words, as they sort of emerge from the text here, that they would transform our hearts and they would bring us hope and a confidence and a trust and a knowledge that, Jesus, you alone are the one true God. Father, we just pray that you would have your way here this morning. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 7. I want to basically start off because, again, this is another one of those chapters that kind of presents a lot of uh, interpretive challenges. So I'm going to basically jump right in. It's kind of as what I did last week. The next slide you'll take a look at. Uh, we talked about in sort of interpretive horizons. I'm going to give you another kind of a interpretive horizon here today. Uh, this chapter talks about uh, a scene of what typically is referred to as 144,000. 144,000 people. Now, this has caused a lot of controversy within the body of Christ. Again, some of it has just been straight up nasty, which is really kind of a bummer. That literally churches have divided over, you know, trying to identify who this 144,000 is. Which, to be really frank with you, I just sit back and I'm like, this is, you got to be kidding me. There's other things by which we can be dividing the body of Christ over that actually have substance, not this type of stuff. But what ends up happening is there's a lot of discussion about this. I'm going to try to break it down for you in two main ways in which people have tried to understand this. Two main interpretive horizons in which this is viewed. The 144,000 is either A, a symbolic number that represents the church. Now again, uh, those that sort of take this perspective, they view this 144,000 in light of traditional, typical Hebraic language, which is very full of uh, literary forms of symbolism, um, people that are anti this view will oftentimes say this type of group is always trying to symbolize things. But the reality is, is that the Hebrew, Hebrew scripture are re, is really full of all sorts of symbolism. We'll, we even see this in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is all full of symbolism. There's lots of symbolism that appears and arrives throughout the book of Revelation. Those who view this particular perspective see this 144,000 representing the church. Uh, throughout all the ages, some nuanced versions of this view, this 144,000, again, as a sort of a symbolic number representing the church in the time of the Great Tribulation. The second way in which some people view this is take this number in terms of a literal number, that this is literally ethnic Israel 
Um, and they view this as basically being sort of a revival of Israel. And I think it's Romans chapter 11, if I'm not mistaken here. Uh, Paul talks about a time when uh, ethnic Israel will have sort of a revival. They will come to Christ and God will start doing a massive work amongst them. And a lot of them view that this is sort of a literal number. Uh, to be really frank with you, I think personally both views have some setbacks. Some of them have strengths. So I'm going to let you guys decide. You can take, I just want you to be aware of some of the background, some of the uh, interpretive horizons of this. Uh, the literal number in terms of view that, that, that they view this, we'll kind of see how this kind of plays out in the text. Uh, in terms of a, a future generation, one day yet to come, 144,000 people within Israel... Jewish people that will come to know Christ during the time of the Great Tribulation. And uh, again, some nuanced versions of this view, uh, this 144,000 Jewish Christians as being sort of uh, evangelists, going around preaching Christ, sharing the gospel during the time of this period of time called the Great Tribulation. And again, that is nuanced between either a seven-year period of Great Tribulation or a three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation. I'm not going to get in that, but you kind of get some of the perspective. Uh, whatever the case is, what I want to try to really hone in on is regardless of whether or not the type of number, the number is sort of symbolic or literal, what I want you to notice is that whoever they are, they obviously belong to Christ. And whoever they are, Christ obviously loves them enough to seal them. Well, look at that in the text. Jesus places his covering over them to protect them. Jesus takes care of those who belong to him. So with that, I want to basically jump in chapter 1, or chapter 7, uh, verse 1. And take a look at this. Uh, I believe chapter 7 is sort of, uh, it's kind of an interesting pause. If you remember last week, we got to the end of chapter 6, and there's sort of this, uh, this question that gets asked by the enemies of Christ. And the question is, is sort of in the midst of great tribulation, great distress, they ask the question, who is able to stand in the midst of this great, great uh, trial, great travail, great difficulty and tribulation? And it seems as if chapter 7 sort of comes in the scene, kind of like a dramatic pause. Um, the story. Now remember, uh, chapter 6 is sort of this unfolding of this seven-sealed uh, scroll that Jesus has in his hands. Uh, chapter 6 talks about Jesus unraveling six of these seals in his hand. And so you're kind of wondering, you know, well, well when's the seventh seal going to be opened? Well, you come to chapter 7, and there's this pause. In other words... It's almost like maybe a dramatic pause to just kind of keeping you on your toes that six seals have already been opened, but the seventh, hold on, it's coming. Almost to just kind of expect the fact that there's going to be, to just cause you to feel it, to feel what's happening here. And I think maybe that's the way John writes in sort of this literary fashion, kind of this dramatic pause to say, we're going to pause you right now, we're going to take a little bit of a commercial break, we're going to show you a little bit of a snapshot of what may be happening here right now. And that's where he switches gears a little bit. And now he begins to focus on this group of people that he identifies as 144,000. says this in verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So again, I want you to notice the symbolism here. Four angels, four corners of the earth, um, four winds. Uh, winds oftentimes... Uh, symbolically, again, when we go back to the reality and we take a look at some of the symbolism, uh, wind is oftentimes a symbol of judgment. You see sort of uh, glimpses of this in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, they use this picture of wind, like a wind that's coming along, kind of like carrying God's judgment. The four corners, now again, obviously symbolic. Um, God's not saying there's like the, 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 the planet is a square. 
Uh, obviously, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an earth, but the four corners probably would represent north, south, east, and west. Again, symbolic uh, in terms of that reference. And there's these four angels. Um, again, symbolic perhaps, but maybe not. Again, the thing to keep in mind is when you read into the book of Revelation, I think, uh, when the literal sense makes sense, someone once said, seek no other sense. In other words, there are going to be moments in the book of Revelation, uh, the literal sense seems to just make sense. So my suggestion is stick with that. But recognize it's sort of peppered with all sorts of symbolic language that really requ- requires a lot of careful study, a lot of careful thought, and conjecture, or and, 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 and careful inquiry as you're reading through the text to make sure that you don't uh, confuse symbolism maybe with some sense that needs to just be viewed as realism. Uh, the word messenger can also mean um, ser- uh, servant, or I'm sorry, angel can also mean messenger. So he says there's four messengers, or four angels, uh, on the four corners of the earth, holding back these four winds of judgment. So he tells them to stop. And then verse 2, he says, Then I saw another angel ascending, in verse 2, from the rising of the sun, with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power over earth to harm the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on the foreheads. So he makes them understand that before these judgments happen, um, my thought in reading this would probably take you back to chapter 6. So in chapter 6, when these seals are being unfolded and judgments are coming upon the earth, uh, and then chapter 7 comes on, it's, it's perhaps viewed as, hey, here's what actually happened. We're going to go back and take a look at some of the, 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 the real fine details. And the fine details are, before the earth started being um, destroyed by these judgments of God, God takes a special moment to seal this group of people. And then it says in verse 4, And then I heard the number of those that were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And uh, verse 5 says, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. And then as you can see, I'm not going to read all that. Uh, You can figure it out yourself. All the way down to 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. All right? And then everything in between. Um, What you need to know is what's what's interesting about this list is it's actually very different from other lists of the 12 tribes of Israel throughout the Bible. For example, Genesis chapter 30, Genesis chapter 49 also give lists all right, those of you that are into lists may like this. And it talks about the tribes of Israel. Uh, what you'll find in almost every single list of tribes of Israel, or sons of, of Israel, um, what you'll find is the firstborn is never Judah. The first guy that's always referenced is Reuben. He's, he was the firstborn. Jacob's firstborn son was Reuben. So it's interesting. A lot of scholars have kind of wondered, why is Reuben not firstborn here? Well, Probably because uh, he mentions Judah. And the reason probably uh, around that is because just a few chapters earlier, he talks about the line of the tribe of Judah. In other words, Jesus comes from Judah. Okay, And so as you kind of go on throughout the rest of the list, and uh, the order is different in other portions of the Bible. One thing you'll also notice as well, the tribe of Dan doesn't appear in there, which is kind of unique. Uh, Dan is not mentioned in this list of uh, details in terms of, and a lot of you know, scholars have debated why. Nobody really knows. I'm just simply saying, I'm just throwing out a bunch of, you know, the bottom line is this, guys. No pastor knows every answer in the Bible. You're like, I thought you did. No. 
I don't. And most of us who I represent, uh, we don't. We don't know everything. Pastors that come along and like, we know everything. Run. Go to another church. They don't know everything. The bottom line is this, is that there's a lot of things in the scripture that, we, that are just mysteries to us. We don't always understand why, because we don't have the red phone to God. All right? Pastor comes along, he's like, I got the red phone. Just talk with God this morning. Uh, again, run. Because the chances are, he's probably a false prophet, and he's just probably trying to sell you something and raise money so he can get a nice car. But the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that there's a lot of mystery in the scripture. There's a lot of things that we don't quite understand. It doesn't mean that we check it out. It doesn't mean that we don't take it at face value. It doesn't mean we distrust it. It just means that we're not completely knowledgeable of every little detail in the scripture. So any scholar that comes along is like, I know exactly the reason why this list does not match Genesis, uh, the, the two lists in Genesis, or the list in Exodus, or the list in, uh, I think, First Chronicles, chances are he's probably wrong. He might have some good input, but nobody really knows for certain. So we can just simply guess. And so that being said, this group of people, 144,000, we're told that they're sealed with the seal of God. Verse 9. Now John says, and after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all the tribes of the people, of languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon a throne, and to the Lamb, to the angels who are standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and then they fell on their faces before the throne, they worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, Again, a little bit of a discussion as to who this group is, all right? Uh, just when you thought that you're like getting the hang of this book, you're like, this is easy, all right? It gets even a little bit more complex. Um, some scholars believe that this group of people, you'll see in a minute, because it says, it kind of identifies who it is, but um, again, some scholars actually view this as really the same number as 144,000. You're like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. And again, the idea behind it is this. I remember in earlier, I think it was in chapter 5, uh, John, uh, he recognizes that the scroll needs to be opened, but he begins to cry out because he begins to think, you know, who's able to open the scroll, to loose the seals? One of the angels kind of speaks out of heaven and he says, hey, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah is found worthy, capable, and able of opening the scroll and loosing the seals. So John turns around expecting to look and see the lion. What does he see? See a lion? What does he see? He sees a lamb. Thanks for that enthusiasm. He sees a lamb. He sees a lamb. All right? He sees a lamb. So some scholars view, again, remember when, when you're reading the book of Revelation, there's, there's, it's filled with all sorts of mystery. John turns around to, to look at the lion of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't see a lion. Instead, he sees a lamb. So some scholars see the same type of literary principle, uh, symbolism going on here. John hears about this 144,000. He turns around to see the 144,000. Instead, he sees this massive multitude of people in heaven, uh, in the presence of God, worshiping God. Others see this group of people as being this massive group of people that were on the earth during a time of great tribulation, not ethnic Israel, but just another group of people that came to know Christ during this time of great tribulation, and yet they died for their faith, and now they were brought up into heaven. So again... The point that I want to make is this. Jesus seals those people that belong to him 
And this massive group of people are going to be in heaven. There's going to be a massive group of people in heaven. So much so that John can't even number it. When he notices this massive group of people in heaven, they're singing songs, they're bowing in their faces before God, they're worshiping God, they're acknowledging the greatness and the worth and the everlasting uh, power of God, and they're singing songs of worship and praise to him. Verse 13, it goes on and says, And then the one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? So he's being asked, who are these people? And John's like, I have no idea. You know. He says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So to me, personally, it seems pretty obvious that this is a group of people, whoever they are, you know, that have come out of the great tribulation. He, he, he uses the definite article in that statement, not just a tribulation, but the tribulation. So to me, uh, what it does speak to me is that this is probably a future event that a large group of people who have been in the great tribulation, great travail, have been uh, trusting in Christ, and they were brought out of this great tribulation into the presence of God by dying. They were killed for their faith, as it would seem. It says they've washed the robes in, uh, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, which is kind of an interesting irony, right? Uh, if you've ever done laundry, you know that blood normally uh, stains clothes. Uh, but the interesting irony, again, in this is uh, the blood doesn't stain. It actually removes stains. And, and the, again, my, my point is that in looking at the book of Revelation, the things that oftentimes we assume are really aren't. And, and things which aren't in our world actually are. In other words, what we oftentimes think is real is not as real as we oftentimes think it is. And those things that we oftentimes are quick to dismiss as being not possible or not plausible actually are. In other words, how plausible is it for a lamb slain to conquer a great beast? Unlikely. All right? Like pretty much 100% unlikely. All right? But in the book of Revelation, that's the way it works. Because I think what John's trying to convey by the power of the Holy Spirit is that the way we oftentimes think is not the way that's accurate or correct. Now that goes against everything inside of us as human beings. Because we want to be right all the time. We fight to be right. We get upset when we're not right. Or when someone questions or challenges our authority on a particular subject. We want to fight. We get angry. We get very defensive. Some people get actually aggressive. But the reality is, is we have to live with this understanding that oftentimes, maybe the way that we see things is not correct. And I think that's the idea that John's trying to convey, is that in reality, the system that much of the world is putting its hope in and trust in is really nothing more than defined as a beast. It's a beast. And it brings about destruction. And it rises, as John even uses imagery and picture, from Babylon, the great, this great, you know, harlot. And Babylon is viewed as this, you know, harlot, it's, it's, it's not good. It's not this, um, it, you know, it's this, it's this figure that is well known amongst the world, the harlot, you know. And what John's trying to convey, I think, oftentimes is that really what brings salvation is not the harlot, is not the beast, but a humble, lowly lamb, a lamb that's been slain. So he goes on, verse 15, and he says, and therefore... They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne 
will shelter them with his presence. And they will hunger no more. Neither will they thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them. Nor any scolding heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is an amazing passage. And really I think the heart of it is John's trying to convey some very profound truth as John is seeing this, as John is understanding this. What I want to do is I want to kind of wrap this up and I want to take a look at some of these various aspects about Christ sort of arising in the text, what we see Jesus doing in this text. Again, like I said, there's a lot of room for discussion. We can discuss all we want as to the identity of these 144,000, who this group of people, this mass multitude of, they are in heaven. And we can do that in a loving, uh, gentle manner. Um, But again, a lot of it is based on speculation and based upon good Many, many, many hundreds of years of people who love the Bible, who love Christ, and they still don't agree on these things. But one of the things that I want to try to do is I want to basically see the text as being helpful to us. And again, looking at the original passage in Revelation 1, that this is a book, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So I'm always wanting to ask the question, I want you guys to always ask the question, what is the text teaching us about Jesus? What's it sharing to us about Christ? What redemptive value is Christ trying to convey or unveil to us in the text that will transform us and help us and change us and bring about revolution in our life in the way that we think, in the way that we carry the gospel, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we deal with pain, in the way that we handle suffering, in the way that we deal with joys in this life? How does the text do that? I want to basically finish with a handful of things and take a look at these. The first thing I want for us to notice is this. The book of Revelation basically talks about, uh, first of all, it reveals to us uh, that Jesus seals those who belong to him. Jesus seals those who belong to him. This is a theme or a concept that does not just simply appear in Revelation chapter 7. It's actually a concept that appears all throughout the Bible, Old Testament as well as New Testament. I'll give you an example. Song of Solomon. Most of us are familiar with that uh, story. Uh, Song of Solomon, he writes this. uh, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. The idea of a seal um, really was oftentimes this concept. It can be either done through a, uh, like a signet ring. Uh, wealthy people would oftentimes have a ring that had sort of a unique inscription uh, on it uh, to them. Maybe it was like the, the family name or something like that, some sort of design. And oftentimes what they would do is they would take either like a, a, a piece of wax that was kind of moldable or some sort of clay, and they would put the seal of the ring into that wax or that clay, and if they were going to be sending a letter, they would put that uh, seal on the letter or like a scroll. Uh, we see the same idea found in the book of Revelation. Or if you had a package that you were delivering, you had some sort of goods, and you wanted to basically say, hey, this belongs to me. The way that you would identify it is you would put your signet ring on it. And again, it would either like have your name or some sort of uh, identification on it. And it oftentimes has to do with identifying ownership. That whatever has your signet ring on it, or the uh, inscription of the seal that belongs to you, uh, denotes possession and ownership. And so this is a picture that oftentimes has arisen throughout the scripture to denote ownership. And in the text, Revelation chapter 7, that this group of people are owned by God. God has basically set his seal upon them. He set his love, set his affection upon them. He's protecting them. They belong to him. In Song of Solomon, it's basically what he's trying to convey is that, look, you, you belong to me. I love you. And you love me. And we're in covenant relationship with each other. Um, Haggai. 
Great passage. It says, I will take you as a rebel, my servant, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Again, this sort of extends the concept a little bit. It helps us to understand this a little bit better. This idea of a signet ring. God says, because I've chosen you. The idea of having this sort of signet ring is also sort of extended this idea that, hey, look, you belong to me. I've selected you. I've chosen you. I've called you. Could have called somebody else. Could have chosen somebody else. But it's you I've chosen. I've set my love upon you. Uh, Ephesians, Paul the Apostle picks up on this similar idea, either from the Roman marketplace, but probably more, uh, more realistically from Old Testament passages like we had just read. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, he says this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So here's what Paul's basically saying, is that those of you that are in Christ, those of you that love Jesus, one of the most beautiful things that Jesus has done for you is he set his seal upon you in the form of giving you the Holy Spirit. You have to understand this. If you're a Christian here today, the fact that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you is a guarantee that you belong to God. It's a guarantee that you belong to God. We have tons of people right now getting married. It's, it's, it's hard for, I mean, honestly, that's one of the reasons why we're doing a class. Like, we, we can't take care of all these people. So we, we're trying as best as we can to lovingly provide some sort of guidance and counseling, whatnot, for them primarily. Uh, but the reality is, a lot of people are getting married, which is great. A lot of people are having babies. Our church has grown one way or the next. All right? It's wonderful. But the reality is this. There's this, there's this like, little function that ends up happening just before somebody gets engaged, and the guy ends up giving the girl a ring. What does that ring say? It says, you're mine. All right? Not in a possessive way, because, you know, you, know, you hear that kind of comes across like, oh, I'm like owned by him? That's creepy, all right? That's not the idea. The idea is that he chose me out of all other girls. He chose me. He loves me. That's the picture. That's the idea. That's what's trying to be conveyed by Paul communicating God in his great love, in his great affection. He's chosen us in Christ and he's placed a signet upon us, a seal in, in the form of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside you, takes ownership of your life. You belong to God. Take a look at the last one, Revelation chapter 14. We get a little bit more of an idea as to what this, uh, this signet is, uh, especially in this identity, this group of 144,000. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him 144,000 who had the name of his father's name written on their foreheads. Uh, so what we see here in this particular passage is that the signet, again, is the name of God in their foreheads. Now again, is that literal or symbolic. If it's literal, that means that somebody has a tattoo of God's name on their forehead. It's possible. They're not punk rockers. So it's very possible that maybe it's just symbolic. Maybe it's symbolic. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, there's some way to identify this group of people as belonging to God. And the way that they're identified is they have the name of God on their foreheads. They belong to God. They're owned by God. Timothy, in the book of Timothy, 2 Timothy, I have it written in my notes, so I'm going to read it to you. He says this, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, he uses the word. He says, the Lord knows those who are his, 
and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So the issue is this, is that those who belong to Christ, those who Christ has established ownership over your life, you belong to Christ. And Paul uses this concept and he says, listen, if you belong to Christ, the reality is, if you are in Christ, then don't keep living in a way that's filled with sinfulness. The idea behind it is this, if Christ belongs to you and you belong to Christ, you're in a different family now. You're not in the family of this world. You don't live according to the family of this world. All right? Let me try to explain it like this. My kids, I love my daughters. We've got great relationship. Love snuggling with my kids on the couch, hanging out with them, going for walks with them. We, you know, I feel like God has just given us a great family whom I love. And the reality is this. I love my daughter so much that there are certain rules that are in the house. Now, I don't make those rules preeminent in the sense of saying, look, you know, for you to be a stupar means you have to live and abide by these rules. Rather, my appeal to them is, listen, you're my daughters. I love you. And you represent me, and, and there's a relationship here. And I want you to understand that in this relationship between you and I, there's certain ways that daddy wants you to live that are honoring to God and honoring to your mom and myself. And so the appeal that Paul uses here to living a holy lifestyle is not just simply saying, listen, you guys should live holy because that's what the church says. Or you guys should live holy because that's what righteousness looks like. In reality, what Paul's trying to say is that, listen, our holiness or our lifestyle should look like God's because we have been adopted into a new family. There's a different family name over our head, over our lifestyle. And so we live according to a new type of family uh, establishment within God's kingdom. Does that make sense? Now, some people try to make rules as being the basis of saying, you know, you've got to live in a moralistic particular lifestyle. And I would actually say that this is one of the problems with American Christianity, just one of them. It's riddled with lots of them, but this is one of them I'm going to pick on right now, is that there's this moralistic behavior. It's like being moralistic identifies you as a Christian. And what I want to say is this, is that that is a teaching that can end up leading a lot of people to hell. Because it's not trying to live according to a certain lifestyle that makes you a Christian. It's that if you are in Christ and you love God and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, you want to live in a way that's pleasing to your Father who loves you and you love. You understand what I'm saying? It's about a relationship. You want to be in relationship with the Father. And out of respect and love and appreciation for what the Father has done for you by selecting you, by calling you, by identifying you, now you live according to that new identity. Your identity, guys, is Christ. You've got to understand, if you are a Christian, your identity is Christ. Your identity is not your morality. I'm not preaching. I'm going to say it one more time. Your identity is not your morality. There's a lot of Christianity out there that's like, listen, the way that you're identified, the way that people know you're a Christian is, you know, we don't have sex, we don't drink beer, we don't go to R-rated movies, we all homeschool our kids, we do certain things in uniform fashion and form and manner, and we dress a certain way, everybody wears their hair long, women do, men wear suits to church, and that's the way that we identify ourselves. And what I'm trying to say is this, 
Because if you're in Christ, your identity is Christ. Your identity is Christ. It's not your morality or your view on what is right or wrong. It's Christ. And as Christ is your identity, what arises out of that is a holy lifestyle because you want to honor and praise and serve your king because you love him. You love your king. Does that make sense? Next thing I want to take a look at is this. Is not only does Jesus seal those who belong to him, the next thing that we see is this. Is salvation belongs to God and to the lamb. Chapter 7, verse 10 says this, and they were shouting out with a loud voice, saying, salvation belongs to God and to the one seated upon the throne and to the Lamb. So salvation, this, I think this is really important because he wants us to understand that not only does salvation, this idea of saving, it belongs to God, but it also belongs to Christ. Christ, so there's, there's sort of this merging of Old Testament thought. Uh, for example, I'll read you the passage in Isaiah chapter 43. This is one of them. There's a lot of them. This is one of them. Isaiah 43, verse 10. I am he, before me there is no God, uh, that was formed, nor shall there be after me. It says, I'm the Lord, and besides me, there's no Savior. I declared and saved you and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witness, declares the Lord. So we basically what God is saying to his people of Israel is, I am your Savior. No other God has been able to deliver you. No other God has been able to help you. No other God has been able to fulfill or satisfy or take care of or deliver. But God's saying, I do, and I always do, and I always will. Trust me is what his whole point is. And the flip side is that there is no other God. So when you come to the book of Revelation, you realize salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. The further thought with this is that you take this sort of Old Testament thought and New Testament thought, and they merge together, and they're not, they're actually in harmony. They're not in contradiction with each other. They're in harmony with each other. In other words, the New Testament way of sort of reconciling this is not to say, as some would uh, claim, that Christianity asserts multiple gods. No, we don't assert multiple gods. We assert one God. But one God revealed in three different persons. God the Father, who's Savior. God the Son, that Revelation declares, is also Savior. And the Holy Spirit. But the point that I think that John's trying to convey that he sees here is that salvation, deliverance, comes from God. And it comes from Jesus. Jesus is the one that saves the opposite, the flip side of all of this is to realize that this is one of the problems in our life, in the way that we live. See, here's the problem in the world in which we live. We, we live in a society, in a culture that's always saying, no, salvation comes. In other words, saving. When I talk about salvation, what I mean is, is being saved. Something that delivers you. Salvation equates to deliverance. So if you start looking at salvation and deliverance in that particular mind, mindset, you begin to start, you know, it, it broadens the concept a little bit bigger to where now you begin to realize our culture always talks about deliverance. In other words, what I mean is this. The way that you're delivered from, uh, you know, ignorance is you get a degree. You go to school. Schooling, education is your deliverer. If you're poverty stricken, the way you get out of poverty is you get a good job, you get training, your job is going to be your deliverer. If you're fat and you realize you want to get skinny, skinny is your heaven, skinny is your way of advancement, skinny is the way you identify yourself, you want to be skinny, that's your savior. So you take a pill, you work out, you buy the thigh master, whatever, and that is your means of deliverance. That's how you will be saved, how you will be delivered. You see what I'm saying? You start looking at it like this, and you begin to realize culture and society in modern times has got all sorts of means of deliverance. 
Old Testament times, they didn't have thigh master. They had little idols. They would bow down to these little idols and worship these little idols. They would pray to them. If they needed rain, they'd pray to rain gods. If they needed, you know, heat, they'd pray to the sun god. And this is the way ancient cultures would do this. And what God's basic point is this, is that none of these other gods will ever deliver you. They can't help you. They can't satisfy you. They're not real. And if they do provide any sense of help, it's only temporary. I mean, the bottom line is this. Let's say you want to be skinny in life, and you work really hard to obtain your weight loss. You get nice and skinny. And then four years later, you die of a heart attack. It's It's over. All your salvation was for nothing, just for another four years, and then it's over. Where does that lead you into the next life? And I think what God's basically trying to say is that there are no other gods that deliver, no other gods that bring satisfaction or safety or help outside of me. That's what he's trying to say, is that in the means by which God has done this or secured this or brought this about is through Jesus. This is exactly what John meant when he heard that the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah that has conquered, you know, all things. So John turns around to look for a lion that's conquering. And what does he see? He sees a lamb that's slain. A vulnerable, humble lamb. And I think the picture is this. That the means by which God has conquered, the means by which God has become your deliverer, my deliverer, the deliverer of all those who trust in him, is by Jesus dying on the cross. I was talking to my kids about this last night as we were kind of looking at Revelation chapter 6. We're about a week behind in our study of this. And we are hanging around talking about this. And I asked my kids at the table, I said, listen, what, what is the, the one enemy that always wins every single time no one's been able to defeat it, ever? I said, death. And my, my, one of my daughters is just like, but daddy, it's not true. You know, there's a few people that haven't died. I'm like, you guys are too smart. Um, right, so like Elijah never died, and Enoch never died, and then Jesus didn't die. Or Jesus died, but then rose again. So I said, my point is that death will always win out. Always. It always has, always will. Death is the final enemy. And what he's basically trying to say is this. No matter what type of gods you serve and follow in this life, they will always fail to deliver you. Because there's one final enemy that will always, always, always win. Death. He said, well, we live in a modern culture. You know, we can, you know, extend life. You know, all we do is, all we do is prolong death. That's all we do. We, we just prolong life to the point where death is just a little bit further down the road. We still die. But here's what he's basically saying. Is that the Father is our salvation. And Jesus is our salvation. That they have worked together cooperatively to bring about rescue, redemption, salvation and john recognizes this that jesus is the giver of salvation salvation belongs to god this is so important for you guys to understand this because some of you here perhaps are still trying to find some other means to deliver you some other means to help you some other means to bring rescue to your life and what you need to do is you need to just recognize that every other thing that you look to to try to bring rescue, to try to bring deliverance, will fail. It cannot deliver. Only Christ can deliver. That's what he's saying. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. The third thing I want you to notice is this, is that Jesus will basically be seen as the sum total 
and of all worth and value. Take a look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 11 through 12. Kind of a little bit of an extensive area right here. I'll kind of work through this quickly. It says this, verse 11. He says, And all the angels were standing around the throne, and the 24 elders, and then the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne. They worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor uh, and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In other words, what ends up happening kind of in this scene is we see a little bit earlier than that, this massive multitude that's in heaven. They're worshiping God, but as they begin to worship God, then these angels begin to worship God. Uh, This great multitude of angels begin to worship God. These 24 elders begin to worship God, and these four living creatures then begin to worship God. So what you basically see here in this picture is all of these people, all of them, so in, in your mind, if you can somehow imagine this, billions, perhaps, upon billions of beings, angels, people, uh, these four living creatures, these 24 elders, all around the throne of God, worshiping God, and the song that they sing is all uniform. Here's what it is. They give praise to God because of his blessing, the glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might that belongs to God. So what I want you to notice is this, is something ends up happening in this scene that everybody sort of synchronizes on. And the one thing that they all synchronize on is they all come to this overwhelming conclusion and realization that God is overall and in all things all powerful, all beautiful, all glorious, almighty. Amen. And that's the whole reality. You say, why is that a big deal? Because the point that I want to make is this, is in this life, none of us really believe this. We really don't. We really, truly don't ultimately believe this with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't always believe this. I don't always believe this. I mean, if I truly believe with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength that God has all power, all might, that affects the way that I live. That affects the way that I walk by faith. That affects the way that I worship. If I truly believe that God has all honor, he's worthy of all respect, if I truly believe that he's all, got all glory, and the word glory basically just means uh, the emanation of beauty. Glory is sort of beauty. You know, I, I've used this term before. It's like bling. <laughs> it's bling. God has infinite, almighty bling. That's glory. It's this emanation of beauty. If I truly believe that God is all glorious, that affects everything in my life. But here's what I want you to notice, is one day, one day, all of us will truly believe that with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. This is why Paul says, today, we see is like in a mirror. It's got fingerprints all over it, it's all messed up. We try our hardest to understand God, to see God, but we have a hard time understanding this because we find ourselves in a world of conflict, a world of difficulty, a world of tribulation, a world in which the world is fighting against us, a world in which our flesh is fighting against us, a world in which the devil is fighting against us. There's all sorts of tugs and pulls and time constraints and babies crying and diapers that need to be changed and bosses yelling at us and mortgage people breathing down our throat saying you need to pay up. We have all sorts of things that are constantly, constantly just reverberating in our brain. 
And what ends up happening is at the end of the day, we lose sight of all of this. We forget the reality. But one day, Jesus will be seen for his sum total. He will be seen. You will see it. We'll all see it. If you trust Christ, we will all be there, and we will know it and see it fully, and we will see him as he truly is. Because the reality is what changes is not God. God is already all-glorious. God is already worthy of all honor. God is already the source of all blessing. God is already full of power and might. But one day, we will fully see it and we will fully comprehend and understand and that will affect everything about how we worship and how we respond to God. The fourth thing I want you to notice is this, is that Jesus is the center of all things. Verse 17 says this, important verse. It says, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne. The lamb. He's in the middle of the throne. The throne, we saw a few chapters ago, is the center of all things. And if the lamb is on the throne, that just simply implies and means that Jesus is the center of all things. Guys, Christ, believe it or not, wants to be the center of the church. He wants to be the center of your life. Christ wants to be the center of your marriage, of your family of your career, of your education, of your artistic outlets. He wants to be the center of all things. I hope you understand that the center of the universe, of all things that are seen and unseen, stands, sits, however you want to view them, Christ on the throne in the center of all things. Jesus is the sun of the solar system of everything. Bad analogy, but the point gets across. That he is the center of it all. And I hope you understand that because that's the way things are. That's what John's trying to say. They are this way. I hope you understand them to be that way in your life. I hope that is the way it is. Because when Christ is the center of it all, not that things are easy in your life because things may never be easy. Again, remember, these people go through tribulation in the book of Revelation 7. There's difficulty, there's hardship, but what John's trying to convey to them is that the center of all things is God. At the center of all things is the throne. At the center of all things is Christ. He's the center of it all. I hope he's the center of your life. The last thing is this. Jesus will be our eternal comfort and joy. I love this. Take a look at verse 15 and verse 17. Verse 15 and 17, it says this. He says, and therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they will serve him night and day in this temple, it says, and he who sits on a throne, which is Jesus, obviously, he will shelter them with his presence. In other words, Jesus himself will actually shelter them. This is a group of people that have come out of great tribulation, great hardship. Can you imagine the promise that's felt by these people? For them to hear the fact that Christ himself, who is not only the lion of the tribe of Judah, but the way he conquers is by becoming a humble, vulnerable sheep that actually is slaughtered. But then the sheep becomes a shepherd. What better person to know how to shepherd sheep well than a person who is a sheep now has all of the experience possible to know how to take care of sheep. Jesus, the sheep, becomes the shepherd in this picture. Jesus shepherds his sheep, and he will protect them and shelter them by his presence. What an amazing picture this is, that Christ is seen as the one that brings ultimate sheltering in the end. And then take a look at verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to their springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And God will ultimately shepherd them. 
He will take care of them. He will shield them. But he will also shepherd them. He will lead them and guide them. This is a group of people. And again, if anything is consistent perhaps in this chapter that's consistent with the chapter before. Remember we read about this group of people that were in this great tribulation that lost their lives for Christ. Can you imagine this is perhaps maybe a group of people that were sort of marginalized from culture, marginalized from society. They weren't able to buy or sell or eat or drink. Perhaps some of them starved to death. Perhaps many of them cried perhaps on their way to death. But the picture that John is saying is that one day you will come and you will see Christ, the Lamb, on the center of all things, and Christ himself will approach you, and not only will he shield you and protect you and shed his wing over you, perhaps, in that sense, but he will also, with his own finger, wipe away tears from your eye. I want you to get that picture in your mind. Because the hope of heaven is not just that going to a place But ultimately the place that we're going to is a special place because of who's there. The Lamb, Jesus, our Savior. I hope you understand how great Christ is. This is why we love Jesus. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we sing songs to Jesus. Just like these people, the impact of the worship or the extent of their worship, or the proportion of their worship was completely dependent upon their understanding of the revelation of Jesus. I would actually state that the way that we worship will be in direct proportion to how big our God is viewed. I mean, in heaven, you see this picture. These guys are singing loudly with their voices. Many of them are on their knees, on their faces before God, worshiping him. Some of us today, I mean, we get a little bit, especially as Americans, and we're like all concerned about like how we sing. We don't want to, you know, raise our hands. We're afraid someone's going to look at us. We're a little bit nervous about that type of stuff. But what I want to basically say is this, is that do you know that one day in heaven, we're not going to care about this. We're not going to worry about this. We're just going to be seeing Jesus. We're going to worship the Lamb. We're going to love the Lamb. We're going to see him as great and as all-powerful and as almighty, and we will worship him. We will bow on our faces before God. It was basically this way of showing uh, respect and honor to a great king. And some of you are like, that's a little bit weird. I'd never do that. Honestly, I would just say, you should practice. You should really think about it. It's an amazing position to just consider the fact that I'm in God's presence. God is here. God is ultimate. God is good. God loves me. Not only is he this ferocious, all-powerful, almighty lion, but he's also this humble, vulnerable lamb that has literally done all of this out of great love for me. He has sealed me. I have my identity in him because of him. A lot of us are fighting hard to earn an identity. But I hope you understand that identity has been purchased in blood by Christ. That identity is everlasting. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't stop. When cultures change, it's the same. And I hope you understand the greatness of our God that's been revealed through Christ. We're going to respond. We're going to worship. We're going to sing to Christ. We're going to have a moment in which we're going to be able to give our gifts, our tithes, our offerings to Christ. If you're one of our guests here, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is an opportunity for us to give joyfully because we love Christ. So I'd encourage you to give joyfully. We're also going to sing to Christ because we love Jesus.
like the people did in the book of Revelation, as they came out of this time of great tribulation and hardship and difficulty, they sang joyfully because they had this awareness of the greatness of God. They sang joyfully. We get to sing joyfully to Christ. Some of you, it's a little bit hard. My encouragement is practice. Practice. Learn to do it. Learn to do it here. So when you get there one day, you won't look like you're from Arkansas. We get an opportunity to just love Christ now, to serve him now, to worship him now. We're going to also partake of communion. We have the communion station set in the back. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded of what Christ did for us on the cross. And I encourage you, as you partake of communion, remember what Jesus did for you, that his blood was shed for you, that his body was broken for you, that today on the right hand of God, in the throne of heaven, is Jesus in a body. That body has some sort of indicator on its, or in its flesh that will communicate for generations, hundreds, millions of years to come, however long, for all eternity, for us to be reminded of the fact that Jesus took upon himself flesh and blood to save us, to give us an identity, to open our eyes, to show us that he delivers. Other things don't. Some of us may need to Repent, turn from our sin, to confess false idols, false gods, false identities that we're working really hard to try to obtain. It takes a lot of energy to secure an identity that never comes to anything. When Christ secured an identity for you for eternity that's full of hope, full of joy, full of life. I encourage you, let's worship, let's respond, let's give, let's partake of communion, let's repent, and consider how great our God is. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you sealed those whom you love. We trust you, we love you. God, right now we want to confess our love and our appreciation, our faith and confidence in you by confessing our sin to you, by worshiping you, by singing songs of love to you by calling upon your name, by praying to you, by asking you to help us, to strengthen us, to give us a bigger vision of who you are. God, we want to respond out of love to you. We want to have holy lives that look like Jesus. Even though he was in this world, he was without sin. God, we want to be like that, not because we love morality, but because we love Jesus. God, I pray that you just receive our worship right now, our gifts, our sin, and our praise.